Hey, Howard Jacobson here. Welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. A quick reminder, this podcast is free for everyone and supported by patrons. So if you would like to find out about becoming a patron of the show and helping us out, helping defray the cost, helping to spread the message, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of Plant Yourself, Well Start Health and Sick to Fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a hearty and healthy life. Today's guest is Shane Williams, and he has been practicing plant-based cardiology, or as I would say, evidence-based cardiology in Canada for nine years now. And with hundreds of patients and lots of experience with what works and what doesn't in terms of advocacy, education and support, he's a really valuable resource for plant-based physicians everywhere. So he began his cardiology practice in 06 and stumbled across the China study in early 2011, immediately shifted his own diet to put it to the test and a bunch of pounds and a 20% cholesterol drop in just a few weeks. He was a convert and began talking to his patients about diet and lifestyle. And prior to this conversion, his conversation with patients about diet might be like, you know, hey, take the skin off your chicken, you know, stuff in line with the Canadian food guide. And no wonder, because in his cardiology training, uh, he recalled they talked briefly about Dean Ordish's work um, and they dismissed it. Yeah, this way of eating might help, but it's so extreme and intolerable that nobody can stick with it. So let's move on to drugs and procedures. And Dr. Williams didn't find this new whole food plant-based diet onerous, extreme, intolerable at all. Uh, rather, not only was he feeling great, losing weight and improving his biomarkers, but he didn't feel like snacking anymore. This was actually easier than his previous diet. And one week after he decided, I need to make a documentary to share this evidence with the world, Forks Over Knives was released. He thinks of it as the documentary he didn't have to make, and he's used it as a learning tool to introduce new patients to the plant-based treatment of heart disease. So in our conversation, and there's also a YouTube of this, so you can go to the show notes for today's episode, um, which is plantyourself.com slash 378, and you can watch the video as well. We talk about the evidence for a plant-based diet to treat cardiovascular disease and the increasingly robust evidence suggesting that the cardiology industry performs way too many angioplasties and bypass surgeries. Two brief reminders before we begin. First, this podcast is free for those who can't afford it and supported by those who can. So if you can and you support the mission of this show, I'd love it if you would go to patreon.com and look for Plant Yourself and become an ongoing supporter of this show. That would mean a lot and it would help a lot. Second thing, if you're looking for help, support, guidance on your journey to health, there's a couple of ways I can help you. One is you can get me on your team as your coach. And if you'd like to find out more about this, go to plantyourself.com slash laser, L-A-S-E-R, for information about my laser coaching program. Second, you can sign up for a upcoming cohort at WellStart Health. Check out wellstarthealth.com slash program for the details about that. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, Shane Williams, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me, Howard. Nice to be here. Yeah, so we yeah we were just saying we met up a couple of times like 2013, 2014, and uh, how, you you are a you would describe yourself as a plant based cardiologist or I and, would that's fair to say okay and when we met how long had you been uh, plant based um, I myself and adding this to my practice around 2010 so I was about three years at the process then. Okay, so I remember you were uh, at that point. You were you were pretty committed. I think we met at a plant stock. Yes. Um, so you were you were you were all in, but you you'd just been doing it for a couple of years as a physician. So I'd love to talk with you about pre and post. So maybe maybe start with like I love to ask this question sometimes. Like, why did you become a doctor? Why did you become a doctor? Yeah, that's a good question. Probably lots of different reasons. One thing, one thinking that. If I can only get through medical school and have a good job, I wouldn't have to worry about debt. Well, that didn't turn out so well because uh, doctors are in lots of debt. Uh -huh. uh, and and then the other thing, my mother was a nurse, and I come from a family of some healthcare people. So so you, you know what? You want to help people. You want to do something obviously that you feel that's satisfying and that you've you've done some good. 
Mm. And you chose at what point did you choose cardiology as your specialty? Uh, probably uh, halfway through medical training. So the, the MD is the first four years, although you do need a bachelor's degree, degree to get into it. Then your MD is four years. So but halfway through that, I decided that uh, cardiology, I thought, was a fairly fascinating area. And uh, I also was amazed, interestingly, about all the technology, you know, angiograms and stents and bypass surgery. It is an amazing sort of... Uh, uh, techno geek interested area of precision and high technology. And once you get into it, you realize, yeah, we do some good, but mm -hmm. we also maybe misuse some of these technologies. And that's putting it nicely, whereby probably too many people are getting invasive procedures. And with the recent release of this ischemia trial, uh, very sobering results that maybe being aggressive in all these patients almost certainly offers them uh, not the benefit we had previously thought it did. Mm. What trial is that? I'm not sure. I'm, uh, up so, on that. so, so that's the ischemia trial. Um, is it, it's got a really good website out of uh, uh, New York University. Uh, Judith Hockman was the principal investigator, and they have a really good website simply called ischemiatrial.org. Org, and it's recently released in December, showing that. Um, patients with um, nearly over 5,000 patients with severe ischemia on functional testing that routinely in our industry, and I choose industry, in our industry mm -hmm. would routinely go to uh, angioplasty or bypass surgery. And they mm -hmm. split the group randomly into those who would get invasive treatment versus those who would just stay mm -hmm. on medical therapy. And, and, and before, the, before the you tell the, res the results, what is yeah. ischemia? So ischemia, sorry, Dr. Jargon, ischemia is a is lack of blood flow to a particular tissue. In this case, coronary uh, artery blood flow impairment, impairing blood flow to heart muscle. Uh -huh. So it's pretty. Um, is it considered? It's considered a risk factor for for heart attack. It is. It's a, it's, a, and, and, it's a, the very presence of narrowings in your coronaries, uh, of course, puts you at risk for those narrowings to rupture and cause a heart attack. Uh huh. Also, for I guess if it's prolonged for congestive heart failure. Yes, repeated damage to the heart muscle eventually leads to a lack of effective pumping function. Okay. So it's so, so it's, it's a big area, and a lot of people are afflicted by this, of course. Hence, why we're into this plant-based area. Many of us. Mm -hmm. And so um, you said they were they were randomized into into what what two groups? So they're randomized into, uh, again, they had to have very moderate or severe ischemia on stress testing. So if you ran a stress test and your ECG only went slightly abnormal and got some mild pain, you wouldn't be eligible for this trial. You had to have very severe symptoms and very severe objective evidence of blood flow to the tissue at rest with severe reduction in blood flow, blood flow to the tissue with exertion. So these were the sickest of the sick patients that we deal with that, again, would routinely be treated with no questions asked. Uh, you need to have an angioplasty or a bypass surgery. These are the kind of people that if we did a treadmill with them on Friday afternoon, those are the people you would say, you're not going home. We're having an angiogram on Monday and you might need mm -hmm. bypass by the end of the week. Mm -hmm. so, and the, and the so angioplasty people, is the balloon? It's the balloon. So it's a catheter-based procedure where they don't do an open uh, cracking of the chest, they just go in through one of the major arteries and cross the blockage and open it up with a piece of, of metal and balloon. Okay. So, ha yeah. so half of the group got that? Half of the group got, um, um, I think about two-thirds of them had bypass surgery and about one-third had angioplasty. I may be slightly off in those numbers, but, but, they, but all of them had, uh, of the treatment group, had what we call revascularization. So an opening of the plaque in the coronary arteries with uh, an improvement in blood flow and with the assumption and anticipation that more blood flow to heart muscle would be a good thing because in a simplistic sense, it makes sense. But uh, the other group, other randomized uh, group had just medications alone and all of them had medications, high levels of uh, compliance with aspirin, statin drugs and all the usual cardiac medications and they were followed for five years to um to detect any change in rates of heart attack rates of uh death and uh much to some people's surprise the difference between the two groups were essentially nil hmm. 
And I assume, which, the, I assume the angioplasty and bypass group were also receiving medications. They were. Everybody was receiving medications. Mm-hmm. So, so it, were you surprised? So um, not really. I wasn't surprised because there was actually a, a precursor trial uh, that, that gave us these signals that opening up blocked arteries alone in stable patients, and what I mean by stable is they hadn't recently, recently had a heart attack, so they've got the blockage there. It hasn't ruptured. At rest, they often have no pain. When they exert themselves, they get pain, and when they stop, it goes away. It's considered a stable situation, despite the fact it's a high risk because those people do have coronary disease. So it was a trial back, I think, around the mid-2000s called Courage, which asked a similar question where bunches of people ran positive stress testing. Half of them went to angioplasty and half were left on medications alone. And in that group, uh, or those two groups, there was no difference in outcomes as well, which at that point, that was a bit of a shock to a lot of people in the cardiology area. But that was a a sign, you know, a a signal that, wow, maybe aggressive treatment, again, is just... uh, reducing the issue, um, like Colin Campbell's reductionism uh, idea, reducing it just to a single blockage, and you're not improving the actual vasculature. So is it surprising then that uh, event rates weren't improved with this invasive therapy? Hmm. Uh, And I guess it wasn't. One of the complaints of that trial of courage in the mid-2000s, as well as the naysayers were saying, well, uh, a lot of those patients weren't on aspirin or not enough were on statins or the stents we used back then were of the older variety. I bet you if we use new stents today, the situation will be much different. So ischemia was sort of an answer to those naysayers. And um, it was a tour de force of a clinical trial, a $100 million price tag by the National Institutes of Health. So a very important trial, huge information. And what what is most upsetting, although maybe also not surprising, is how this information, when released, hardly moved the news media's needle in terms of co- covering the very important bit of information to the general public. Mm. So, uh, like is, I often say, how the news media cover things, as, as you know, is interesting depending on how the spin could be on, on it to, to relay whatever message sometimes they want to massage from the information. But the lack of coverage, really, by most news media, I thought was very telling that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who don't want the general public, I think, to really understand this information. And that is probably these procedures are overused and not saying bypass or angioplasty is never a good option for certain selected patients. But the widespread use of them for everybody who runs positive stress tests, I think, is a very sobering bit of information to say we need to use these technologies prudently and only in proper situations and not widespread. Right. Well, the last cardiologist I spoke to on the podcast, I think, was uh, Dr. Monica Agarwal down in Florida. And she was complaining that her her department, um, you know, the administrators bring her in to complain about her lack of revenue. So, yes. you know, my understanding is that angioplasties are expensive, maybe a couple, you know, 25 grand or something um, wow. bypass could be anywhere from 100 to 200 grand. What? So there's there's money involved. Um, but it sounds like also that there's like those are more fun than just prescribing drugs like they're, they're more of a challenge. You know, if you, you, you go to school for all these years, you want to be a good cardiologist. You got to you got to keep your hand in and, and do the stuff. Yeah. And, and in fact, interestingly, it was angioplasty and angiography and these taking x-ray pictures of the heart arteries that that actually got me originally interested in cardiology so it's so it's a very um if i can use the words a very sexy technology that's uh potentially very uh adrenaline uh, adrenaline containing to go in and and feel like you've opened up an artery and now the person can walk and in the short term their angina seems improved. It's a, it'd be a very satisfying thing, much the same as orthopedic surgery to replace a hip in somebody who can't walk into the hospital and they get a hip replacement and now they can walk out. I mean, that's a very, uh, hmm. must be a very satisfying feeling, but that doesn't mean then that everybody needs a hip replacement or that everybody should have their artery opened up. Right. So it's almost like we're, we're, we're giving hits of dopamine to the cardiology profession. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They call it the oculostenotic reflex, I think. <laughs> What's that? 
<laughs> well, C blockage, open blockage. And, uh, and sometimes it gets to be sort of like a dog chasing a car. You got to uh-huh. you got to stand back now and say, is this the appropriate treatment for this patient? So um, so that's I mean, that's the ischemia trial was a very important bit of information. So if I could get that to your listeners to have a look at ischemia dot org so that they're they're better informed about when somebody comes to them and say, oh, your stress test was positive. You clearly will benefit from invasive power saw to your chest and bypass surgery. That may not be the case, and mm. people need to do their own uh, uh, bit of their own work on that behind. Yeah. So you say it didn't. It, it didn't hit the media. Has it moved the needle in terms of practice? Are there are there doctors going well? I'm I'm evidence based, so I'm gonna. Or or are they saying well, yeah, other people are doing too many, but I'm doing the right amount. Yeah. Well, I guess time will tell those because a lot of these professions will. We'll go and do, I think I remember John McDougall mentioning uh, after the CARP trial uh, or an evaluation of whether or not if somebody comes in for a medical problem, you, you probably heard of this, and uh, they're an older person with risk factors, and they may be scheduled to require gallbladder surgery or, or hip surgery. The routine practice for many years, especially in U.S. hospitals, although I think in Canada as well, is you'd say, well, that person's at, by the way, we, before we put them under anesthetic, they're at risk for heart disease. So let's just do an angiogram while we're here hmm. preoperatively. And the practice was, well, if they see a lot of blockages before they even go to surgery, we should do uh, revascularization on those people to reduce their risk of intraoperative problems because it seemed like a good idea underlying seemed and a big trial was done that showed that wow we actually harmed more people by doing these c blockage bypass blockage approaches so so you only go and and then the practice was supposed to change according to acc guidelines that you only go and do revascularization surgery on patients who who showed demonstrable ischemia on objective testing and so that's what the practice was supposed to change to. And I remember, I think, reading John McDougall's explanation that a few years after the trial was released and the ACC came out, the American College came out and made guideline practice change guidelines to say, doctors, you shouldn't be practicing with routine reopening those arteries preoperatively. Stop that behavior. And a, 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 a review or an audit was completed some years later and realized that practice, sadly, hasn't changed very much at all. Mm. Well, I mean, usually there's some sort of like insurance company pressure, right, or or third payer pressure to to equalize. If you you know, if you say, um, you know, this the average, let's say, C-section rate in the United States is 18 percent. And here's a hospital where it's 43 percent. Right. Like we want. Is is there are there numbers that, that people can look at and say, oh, this, you know, like. How, how would if how would a person, a patient, evaluate their cardiologist or cardiology practice to know if they're you know really into the saw and, and bubble or or if they're more nuanced? Yes, that's an excellent question, and I and I think if correct me if I'm wrong, a number of U.S. hospitals have have been pressured to provide um, certain rates of procedures as a as a surrogate for how aggressive therapy is in certain hospitals that that's that's been talked about in Canada. But as of right now, mm. on a related note, you know, if you wanted to go have bypass surgery, your your inkling might be, well, just like doctors or or plumbers or vets, not everybody is as good as the next guy. So we'd like to uh, we want to make sure we choose a doctor with proven capability and a low risk of complications. Unfortunately, the system in Canada is, is not transparent enough to produce that data. We know, for example, some surgeons will take people to bypass and, and have a 3% mortality rate, which is quite low, although if you're one of the 3%, it's quite high. <laughs> and some other surgeons may take the people to the operating room and have a 6% mortality rate. So mm-hmm. still low, but twice as much as, as, the, as the very highly skilled surgeon. So, right. Although so, you also uh, can get blowback from that, if you have surgeons saying that I'm not going to take on high risk because the, the the results will get misinterpreted. Indeed. Yeah. So there's a lot of unintended consequences to releasing that information. So I'm not saying it's simple because it has to be put in proper context. But 
but but the very first step is to decide how you're going to release the information and be as transparent as you can to reduce the risk of it being misinterpreted. But the current approach is nothing. Mm. We won't tell you anything. Mm-hmm. OK, well, we got to do better than that. So we've we've talked ourselves into a, a awful corner here where there doesn't seem to be any good outcomes. But you you found a way out. So you said around 2010, you discovered this whole other body of evidence. Tell tell me like what what was your practice before that, and how did you know what was your first exposure to lifestyle medicine? So my practice before 2010, having graduated around 2006 or so, was was uh, a standard practice of of medications, making sure people are optimally treated with those with vascular disease, that they have an aspirin and statin, and and for me to talk to them about exercise and maybe mention eating as sort of an afterthought. And if I did, it was more in keeping with things like the Canada Food Guide, which at that time was uh, was you know purporting that people should eat skinless chicken and regular dairy and so forth, which we now know is uh, total rubbish. So that was my practice beforehand, and it was it was literally uh, skimming through books on the uh, internet, looking for medical related books that I came across a copy of the China Study. Huh. And and bought that just sort of as I thought it was a book about Walmart purchasing habits first, <laughs> and uh, but it was the the greatest uh, uh, what's one of the titles there the most important uh, nutritional uh, trial ever completed something like that which mm. I thought well let me give it a shot and when it came I I read it and my first initial uh, opinion and and I know you know Colin Campbell well and and he's a personal friend of mine as well and I and I later told Colin this and he giggled. When I read it first, I thought, who is this Colin Campbell character? Because this is very radical stuff. And I thought it was sort of um, uh, very upsetting in many ways because I hadn't heard about this information before that that with his work in in China and showing a very direct correlation with animal product consumption and the inset, onset of uh, chronic disease. So so from that, it was very challenging to me that that. And, and upsetting in many ways that that we hadn't been taught this in medical school. So it then prompted me to go do a little bit more research to kind of double check this stuff. And I realized it was all very, very true. And it was sort of lost to history and mm. and not properly educated in in our medical schools. Mm. So when you said you checked this stuff, what did that look like? Because you could just as easily if you're just you know spinning the roulette wheel on Internet books on health, you could have come up with an Atkins book. And you could have read that. And within the pages, it, it presents a very coherent uh, argument that right. uh, that low well, carb well, one, is the way to prevent heart disease. So what, what did you do to, to, to put it to the test in your own mind? Well, well, one thing I went back and read some of the original papers that Colin had printed. And 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 not too much later, I actually visited, uh, made contact with Colin and and sort of checked out what he was up to and looked at his some of his other publications to say that is this legitimate like is this and i realized well he's professor emeritus with cornell university and the work that he's done has been superb and a number of other people that colin mentioned in the book like dr caldwell esselstyn and i'd heard about dean ornish but went back and looked a little bit more in detail of what dean ornish was 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 all about because we'd heard about ornish in medical school but it was very much dismissed as maybe this diet might help to open arteries in the heart, but but nobody can stick to it because it's intolerable. So anyway, let's move <laughs> on. And that's how it was presented to us. So naturally, it, we're busy trying to study for exams, so that's probably not going to be on the exam. So we move on to the next topic. So th- so so I went back and and a lot of these names that I'd heard came across Dr. John McDougall and, and, you know, his clinical work and so forth. So I dug a little bit more into these people's work uh, and also arranged eventually to to start hanging out with some of these people to uh, see them in clinical practice and see what they were up to and realize that uh, this was very legitimate and important work that they were doing. But there must have been a lot of resistance just sort of, you know, self-interest, ego Based. You talked about coming out and you know graduating in 2006, discovering that you had a ton of debt. Like, aren't you shooting yourself in, in the foot? What? <laughs> well, I mean, um, 
in some ways, the challenges related to this, of course, which you'd be aware of, too, is is trying to mention it to enough patients that you can reach the 30 to 50 percent of people who will take this seriously and do something about it and incorporate that into the clinic visit, which is generally fairly short. Now, I mean, I tend to be a bit slower in clinic visits because I want to take the time to go through a number of issues. So I tend to spend um, more than 30 minutes, sometimes closer to an hour, even over an hour with a patient on a first visit. That's that's a lot more than many physicians have the have the desire or the luxury to do. Um, I wouldn't say luxury because, of course, the more time you spend like that with patients, the less money you can make. But again, I, I, I believe I believe that, you know, we I, I'm a big believer in rather than rushing through it, I want to do a good job the first mm. time around. Right. Well, do, and, do, do you do you live on a lake? Did you have a boat you were making payments on? Or? No, I didn't have a boat. I was making payments. Like maybe that's lucky. maybe that's the luxury. <laughs> I did have a motorcycle that luckily got seventy miles to the gallon. So that <laughs> so that's so my expenses were kept reasonably low. But um, and then it and then it built, you know, and more and more people uh, got the message. And and a lot of people who I've trained and, and taught this message, they go and tell a lot of people, too. So it becomes a little bit like a chain reaction once you get the momentum going in a, in a certain region. So, so it's been great. Hmm. So you read I know I, I remember reading the China study late 2004. And there's a difference, though, between reading it and believing it in your head and then putting it into practice with people for whom you've taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. Were you nervous about bringing this in? No, not really. I mean, when I came across it uh, in late 2010, I, I started eating according to the principles um, and uh, and just tried it for for a month or two. And within about within about 10 weeks or so, I lost 22 pounds. None of my clothes fit me anymore. And uh, a lot of the people I knew said it was around the time when poor Steve Jobs was unwell mm -hmm. and they were looking at me going, oh, boy, he's he's next because he must be very sick. He lost all this weight suddenly. And, and instead of feeling sick, I felt, you know, as usual, better, better than ever. So it was around in early 2011 that I realized that this was this was there was something really to this. Mm. Did you do did only, you do your measurements aside from weight? Did you t check out, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure? That stuff. Yeah, my blood pressure was never terribly high, but it was in the 135 over 82 range, mm -hmm. a little a little elevated. So that normalized the my cholesterol came down about 20 percent within two months. And so and the blood sugar was never abnormal. So 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 I had objective measures, subjective measures of proof of improvement. And then I had this data that I was double checking to realize that this is legitimate stuff here. So how do I begin mentioning it to patients? And so around uh, February, March of 2011, I started mentioning to patients and I got uh, various responses. You know, some of them skeptical, some of them rejection, some of them, oh, that's interesting. Let me look into it. And over the course of the next few months, a lot of people were coming back with big changes similar to what I experienced. Mm. So it was around June of 2011 that this happened so often. I started thinking, I'm, I got to make a documentary about this. This is amazing. And literally within about a week, Forks Over Knives was released. <laughs> so, I, so Forks Over Knives was the documentary, you know, that I didn't have to make. And uh, we, we use that a lot in our introductory courses to get people who are has show any interest at all. We say the first step is just watch Forks Over Knives as a non-threatening, not overly pushy. Uh, exposure to how much medical science there is behind this message. Mm. But now you you also you had been exposed to to Ornish and it was sort of yeah this works but nobody can stick with it. When you decided to try it yourself, was it hard to stick with it? What what was what was the the transition like? The transition was easy actually, more surprisingly easy than I would have anticipated, and the biggest. The biggest change I remember now that was 10 years ago was was by eating this way, I found my cravings in between meals were significantly reduced. That that's one thing I remember noticing that I wasn't hungry. The weight was coming off me. I felt better than ever, but I didn't really have strong urges to eat at night and to eat a lot of snacks and so forth. So that was the biggest difference I found in my eating patterns, because sometimes my daytime eating wasn't so bad, but it was the nighttime. Mm -hmm. The cravings were sometimes just hard to resist.
But what did, what were you what did you eat? I mean, a lot of people when they discover plant based, they're like, I'm really confused because this uh, I know how to make a normal plate, but I don't know how to like what to put on the plate yeah. anymore. Yeah, I don't remember what time at what point I came across uh, John McDougall's work about the his emphasis on starches with mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables added. So I think you know early on we ate a lot of stews, we ate a lot of uh, soups, we ate uh, we ate quite a few starches in addition to the greens and and the fruits, and that seemed to uh, that seemed to work fairly well. And and mm -hmm. early on we were using some oils, but realized that okay the oil is also uh, setting us back. So, so the oil amount of oil was reduced and, okay, yeah. and I got further benefits. Gotcha. And when you say we, who, who, who else was doing this with you? Uh, me and my wife. Okay. Yeah. Was, yeah. She, was she on board? She was actually. Yeah. So, um, so as soon as I came across it and told her that this is pretty significant stuff. And, um, so, so she immediately thought, you know, she, she struggled with some weight as well and thought, well, let's try it. And so she started cooking this way and we all started eating this way. And it was uh, it was surprisingly easy to trans to mm. transfer over. Mm. Um, all right. So you've made you've made the transition yourself. You have your own um, proof. You start mentioning it to patients. Some of the um, so so it, were you doing like the 30 to 60 minute visits at that point? Like what was what was the typical conversation with the patient in the early days? The typical conversation was, of course, the first part of the visit was reviewing their issues and their meds and and doing the physical exam, going over the medicines that are important for this particular condition or if medicines are going to be needed in the long term. And then and then near the end of the visit, saying to people, OK, now I have some more information for you. And that, you know, I've, I've come to recently find out that, that food plays a much bigger role than, than we ever thought. And then let me show you some information uh, uh, done by researchers out of Cornell and, and, uh, and the Cleveland Clinic, for example, mm -hmm. and, and started, started introducing the concept that way. And, if, um, and I, I'd let the person uh, dictate, you know, how much information they wanted. If they showed interest, I'd suggest watching the forks and we discuss it at the next visit, but that I'm here to tell you that that message about plant-based nutrition or or trending towards plant-based nutrition is a legitimate, scientifically proven approach that is safe and effective. And I and I, I felt that was as a cardiologist that, that they would take me seriously. So if if I could plant that seed for those who wanted to help themselves, they would look into it. Mm -hmm. And and again, uh, you know, many of them did. Yeah. Well, you have a very authoritative way about you. I'm listening to you just now going, I really believe that. Like, like you know, you like Cornell, you know, Cleveland. And, and the other thing is that you um, I don't hear a lot of doctors expressing a growth mindset that I've just I've recently learned some new things. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> that's it, yeah. was, it was a very um, striking way to hear you talk about it, it you know, sort of vulnerable and I would think it would make patients admire you and respect you more. But I don't hear a lot of doctors admitting that they continue to learn. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember back in training one time I gave a presentation to a bunch of physicians and and my tutor and, and mentor, in fact, and I someone asked me a question and, and I didn't know the answer. And I said, uh, I, I really don't know that answer, but I'll get back to you. Well, after the session was over, he came up to me and said, Shane, whatever you do, Never admit you don't know it. <laughs> and I and I remember thinking, and this man was a very high quality doctor, like one of the top doctors in the province where I trained, and I had tremendous respect for him, and I still do. But I thought that was an interesting angle that you never admit what you don't know. That's not how I approach things. No, mm -hmm. I I think it's important to admit that, and maybe that does ingratiate me to more patients and make them sort of let their guard come down and realize that this guy is still trying to learn things, you know, every day too. Mm, beautiful. And at this point, you what, what was your relationship with the medical profession um, structurally? Were you part of a hospital group? Would you have a like? Yeah, you, I was had, part of, a, of an internal medicine on call group actually at our local hospital. So one week per month that each physician would take turns to be on call 24 seven for that week is a pretty, pretty tough schedule. 
And, um, and that's, that's plus I ran a, an office practice uh, outside the hospital. I see. So did you have to deal with skeptical colleagues with with uh, with people whose own financial well-being was being challenged by your your heresies? Well, no, I think because of the way it was set up, how uh, small town uh, on the specialist on call, it was it was it was very much like, well, you handle and give advice, whatever you whatever you want to do, because Quite frankly, so many people were sick and there were so many medications and not everybody is going to listen to your advice that I don't think I threatened any local physicians because there's so much business, sadly, hmm. uh, that we'll never live long enough to, to, to take care of all these people. So I, I think they, they, they didn't see it as, oh, my God, the more people you make better with salary, then they're no longer customers of mine. There's just simply so many people that I don't think they were ever threatened by that. Gotcha. So do you remember the first patient who came back to you with like really good news with a with a remarkable transformation that made you think, OK, this is this is going to work? You know, I don't maybe I don't remember the very first, but I remember the first few. One one patient in particular had an amazing story is he was he had. Now I look back, knowing the results of the ischemia trial, I, I feel a little bit less anxious about it. But at the time, we didn't know that high-risk ischemia patients could do well in the long term. And, and he had his uh, chest pain evaluated. He had his stress test and angiogram, three vessels blocked. And he was signed off to have his surgery the next week. And we did a public screening of Forks Over Knives at the local university, uh, Satellite University here in our small town. And he came to it and said, no way, I'm not having bypass surgery. And he made contact with Esselstyn. I think Esselstyn spent... Dr. Esselstyn spent like over an hour with him on the phone going through his case and mm. uh, and convinced this man who was an ex um, an ex football player, uh, an ex um, an ex educator, uh, administrator and a very disciplined man to change his diet. And he changed his diet. He went from he went 100 percent in day one. Very disciplined person. And his results with his weight and his blood pressure and his cholesterol was as remarkable as as you would think, it was just like day and night change. But most of, interestingly, I found was that when he came to see me first and what prompted his evaluation for chest pain is that he was getting five and six out of 10 chest pain walking 20, 30 feet, very impaired. And this was on maximal medication. And he switched his diet. And within six, seven weeks, He's swimming 20, 30 laps in the local YMCA with no chest pain. Hmm. And I must say, the first the first few months when he was telling me about it, I would be in my seat going, oh, my God, you're making me nervous. Just telling me your story because I still don't want you to go and exercise like crazy because, you know, bad things can happen. Your heart is not normal. And that was uh, that was nearly nine years ago. And he's done. He's done really, really well. Hmm. Nice. So how have how have your uh, counseling um, strategies and protocols evolved over the years to be to be more effective in um, in advocating for for lifestyle change? So what we started doing a number of years back was was asking people if they'd like to attend a, a group counseling session with uh, maybe ten or twelve people for one hour per week. Uh, in a in a in a classroom that we have set up, so that I can uh, present some concepts of plant based nutrition. I can answer their ongoing questions as they transition to this, because as you know, there's there's many little nitpicky questions that people have as they transition, and I can also be, have a forum to present cases that have done real well. Uh, maybe also present cases that continue to struggle with poor eating habits and to get people's suggestions and so forth. So it became and it also, quite frankly, became as much of a, a social support network for for people as well, because human beings, you know, we just we're social creatures. And and if we're struggling with a new transition, then it's a lot easier to do it when you're struggling with a group of people. So we started what we call the Lunch and Learn seminar series here um, about six years ago. And they've uh, they've they've been really, really well received. Hmm. Um, so it's a. How, are there like uh, modules? Like, is there a curriculum that you that you go through? Is it mostly sort of Q and A and response to questions? 
It's a combination of both, really. So we, we do have sort of uh, r- suggested readings around before each session that we give people. And we have uh, we also tee up certain TED Talks, like uh, them done by uh, Dr. John McDougall and Colin Campbell's TED Talk and Dr. Esselstyn's TED Talk each separate week, Dr. Neil Bernard's TED Talk, to uh, to give them some base, baseline for, for which what the discussion is going to be around. But it's also very much aimed uh, and directed by the by the group, because, again, different groups will have slightly different takes and different questions that are impairing their 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 transition or, you know, that they that they'd like to have answered. So it is really patient directed, which is supposed to be. But but it also has that background curriculum of like week one, I actually present John McDougall's work and suggest people to read the start solution and uh and give a number of references for this but uh question and answers seem to really be a big issue and a big benefit for especially for the first uh, month or two of these programs mm-hmm. now as, as as i mentioned you ha- you come across very authoritative and so when you tell me you know you tell your patients in this you know stentorian uh cardiologist voice about this evidence i believe you they believe you but they haven't actually seen for themselves. So then they go and they listen to Stephen Gundry on television or right. So that now they're getting another story that's also that's all Mm -hmm. that's that's very well put together. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you help people? uh, First of all, is is do you find that's an issue that people keep imprinting on the last intelligent sounding thing they hear without mm-hmm. <laughs> without evaluating and, and if so how do you help them you know uh, many of the themes that we present in our lunch and learn seminar is with a goal to trying to have the patient think more critically about health information and news media quite frankly because as you know um the media and and the and the techniques and and the and the sound bites and the flashy videos can be very seductive and convincing so so we ask people you know to and we we encourage them to to not so much challenge their healthcare providers or people or alternate health people who are giving them this information but 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 I sort of I guess I do coach them to say Oh, my, my naturopath says that this supplement is very good because they looked at my blood and it's inflamed. I'd say, well, what do you think, Dr. Williams? And I say, well, I don't want to be here to badmouth your naturopath. Not at all. I, I got a number of naturopath friends who are highly educated and I think are doing good work. But if somebody's trying to push a particular supplement or an approach on you, I ask them, have you asked them to present the, do you have any data? And do you have? And we don't want data from mice. We want data from human beings. Do you have any outcome data? Well, what does that mean? And then I go through what what that kind of means. And uh, well, what does it mean outcome data? Well, that means that you don't just give it to human beings and they seem happy and they go away. We want to count the dead bodies. We improve the level. And more importantly, improving the level will change the outcomes. So mm-hmm. I kind of hold. On, can we can we stop? A, can we stop for a second? Because I, I just cut out. Um, so I'm gonna need. Yeah. To, I'm gonna need to, it was like a 10 second uh, glitch where nothing came up. Um, okay. Could you could you go back to like um, yeah. count the bodies? Yeah. So so I, I teach them and encourage them and coach them that when they're faced with alternative health information. Um, uh, both mine and other people's to ask them to to think about it in a way that you need to be critical just because a doctor says a certain thing including me doesn't mean that it's true but i point them in a way to say go and ask for uh you know the human trials done on a particular uh, intervention or a particular supplement and okay what are you what are you looking for there well you're not just looking that they gave the medication or the chemical or the supplement to humans but you looked at that it improved something and that the outcomes are different in the group that were treated. So I kind of I kind of coach people in our lunch and learn seminars of how to interface with a lot of this information that's being thrown at them to realize that just because it's in a headline or just because a doctor in a flashy suit in a nice uh, edited video says it, you do need to have a, a certain degree of critical skepticism to say, don't just tell me, but show me. Mm. 
do they is that easy to do? Because I remember reading a book on negotiation and then going in to buy a car. And like if there's ever a time where you're allowed to negotiate, it's with a car sales team. And I was like, I had to like, you know, overcome all my upbringing to be different, different and polite. Like, right. And, and, and that's selling a car. This is like, you know, this this naturopath whom you really trust and like, is that easy for people or how to what, what do they tell you about that kind I think, of confrontation? I think it. I think it I think it varies and it takes and this is not something that you're necessarily going to learn the techniques of in one session, of course. But but you also have to realize in terms of I do have patients of various ages, everything from 20s up to 80s or 90s. And and it's a cultural thing, too, where where, you know, depending on where you come from and your, and your upbringing and, and, and how physicians were seen in the general uh, in the general community. Yeah, I'm dealing with a number of people who, if the physician said it was so, and the physician tells me to take such and such a pill, that I dare not challenge them uh, because they know best. So sometimes I'm starting from a fairly low level of um, of negotiating ability to interface with the physician, and I try to convince people that that whether you like it or not, you need to be thinking about healthcare. In my opinion, more as any other service that you get. And you need to be an informed consumer in order to be able to make the best decisions rather than the old school thinking of if the clergy were to say it or the doctor says it, then it's gospel and we don't even challenge it. So so we introduce those kind of ideas gently with various success based on the people we're, we're talking to. But that's generally the theme and the message we're going for is that you need to be more of an active consumer to your healthcare. Mm. Mm. So uh, what does your practice look like right now in terms of numbers of people who are coming to these weekly sessions and are adopting the the plant based diet and and those who who still just think of you as the you know, the, the cardiologist? The vegetable. Yeah. So, I mean, we do um, we do uh, four or five sessions of these per week of about a dozen people each into the group. And uh, we have people who are waiting on a wait list for a number of months before because we do these uh, groups in regular cycles and six week cycles. So we're we're reaching, you know, we're reaching a significant number of people each week uh, who then will, you know, inform their family and friends. And, and we're in a fairly small community of uh, of uh, about 20,000 people. And in the whole region is maybe 60,000 people who live here. Uh, but it's been really good because because by by teaching this to people locally, a lot of people who struggle with finding even restaurants who talked more plant based, that's certainly been changing over the past number of years. So when they go to a restaurant before, they hardly have nothing on the menu that was plant based and oil free. And now we're seeing local restaurants having three and four and five different options for people uh, because because that's what the general public are demanding. Mm. So. The if you go to a conference like Plantrition or Peapod, Plant Place Prevention of Disease, or even the ACLM conference, one of the big things that I hear everybody talking about is practice models. Like, okay, I'm I believe in lifestyle medicine, I believe in plant based diets to prevent and reverse disease, and I don't know how to make money at it, how to have a sustainable business, even even something close to what I have now. Do you feel like you have? for yourself kind of crack the code on what that can look like no we're still trying to figure that out really because of course you have to make money and uh and no there'll never be as much money in uh in teaching people how to eat uh in this anywhere close to this model as it is to put some, a stent in someone's heart artery that's 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 a very quick way to earn money but we obviously want to practice good medicine so so that is that is a challenge. Our our upcoming plan now, starting in March, is we're going to um, to go online and to uh, to transmit our um, plant based uh, seminars uh, with uh, live streaming video. So that so because we've had a lot of people over the years say that we really like how you present the data. You make it simple. You also might make it a bit fun. You make it interactive. But I have a lot of friends and family who are across the country or maybe in the United States who want to learn about this. So we're going to start a, a virtual lunch and learn program coming uh, next month in, in March. 
and we're hoping that this is something that we could scale and maybe there'll be a there'll be a fee for people to access it each month and we can earn money to pay our bills but that we can scale this message on a bigger in a bigger uh, way hmm. so so yeah earning money from any of these models that certainly is a challenge because again there's so much money to be made uh, through a procedure related type of medical practice mm-hmm. um, that when you're into group counseling and you're into uh, uh, teaching people how to, how to eat, and this takes time, it's automatically not going to be particularly lucrative in the, current, in the current model. So I think plant-based physicians need to think about new and innovative ways to, to use this newer technologies to try and make a living and also make an impact. Right. Are you have you thought about are you planning to license it to other cardiology practices that maybe don't have your interest or skill or uh, or time to 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 teach? Yeah, I think I think a big uh, a big test will be now for the first few months of our online program. And as maybe uh, physicians could log in and see what we're doing to see if it's a product that would be of interest to them or if they'd be able to uh, endorse it and have to send some of their patients to our uh, to our program. So I think it's something that as a test idea, that's that's what we are hoping that maybe it will expand in that area as well. Mm. Because like you say, not not all physicians, uh, a lot of physicians went to be a physician and they enjoy the one on one interaction, but not every physician wants to run a group program and they may find it boring or they're not passionate about it enough. And we say, that's okay, then send them to us and, and, and we'll be happy to do that. Or if you want to learn, we've had a number of physicians sit in on our programs and say, this is a pretty good idea. Let me go back and see how I can incorporate this into my practice. Mm. Do you have like a habit or behavior change component to it? Uh, not specifically, but but the topics, of course, do come up in the small group sessions. And, and uh, you know, I'm hoping that a this, the technology with live streaming will allow us to be able to do uh, interviews and have particular aspects of behavioral change and addiction medicine and, and, and all of those things that relate to the emotion of eating, which, as you know, is uh, extremely important. Mm-hmm. The facts are essential, but, uh, but handling the emotion and we're big, big pushers of uh, things like uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction as well, mm-hmm. and uh, and those type of aspects of controlling your mind before you can deal with a lot of the compulsive eating habits. So, so we hope that the technology like the live streaming might be able to allow us to hire MBSR teachers and have that as an option on the website as well. And uh, so we we've, we've got big hopes that this 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 might be an important step for us. Uh, to to be able to make this more global, literally, in in our neck of the woods. Mm. And I know you're uh, a big believer in data. Are you collecting data either from your own practice or aggregating with other plant based doctors to look like what is like we know it works in theory, but here's what it does in practice. Yeah, for the past two years, what we tend to be using when all new patients come into the practice or folks. Uh, um, through their lunch and learn participation, we've been doing the four leaf survey, uh, you know, spearheaded by Jim Hicks and um, and um, and and the physicians there. So so we really think that's a it's it's a really good tool to give us a rough idea where people's eating habits start and where they end up. Hopefully, closer to the four leaf scale, where where a high proportion of their foods are coming from whole plants. So we're using that tool as an entry point for a lot of people in conjunction with their blood work. And we've, uh, I think we have now about um, 300 uh, patients who we've, we've looked at, and we're still analyzing the, the data and trying to determine, okay, well, how many people who come in and take our Lunch and Learn program actually change their eating habits? That's question one. And of those who do, what are the numbers? And we're getting rough numbers that uh, I think it's something like uh, 40 to 50 percent of people make make a change of two or more scales on the four leaf guide level, which is significant. And then when we look at the people who make those changes, uh, the average drop in cholesterol in as little as six weeks is around 20 percent of LDL reduction, which is pretty amazing for one hour per week sat in a classroom with me. And I don't know how many hamburgers they're eating when they go away or pizzas. So to have an average reduction of LDL of 20% in six weeks, we think that's a, a pretty amazing number. Uh, but but we're going to be uh, we're going to be analyzing that in more in more detail. 
Mm. Um, I don't know if you know, back in 2014, since you and I spoke, I had the honor of hosting Dr. Campbell and Dr. Esselstyn in a plant-based immersion program uh, that we did along um, in the Dominican Republic, where we registered 43 participants, did the blood work at baseline, fed plant-based nutrition to them uh, uh, for seven days, and did blood work at the end. And out of 43 people, average cholesterol reduction was was over 40% in seven days. So it was amazing. 40, 40%? 43% LDL dropped in seven days. Wow. So that's what happens when you feed people, when you don't just let them feed themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a bit like a ward experiment. A bit artificial because you're in lovely weather. Somebody's handing you the food along and you don't have to worry about your compulsive eating patterns. But uh, but it was a really amazing result. And, uh, you know, those are things that also help inspire us. And we show that data to newbies to the area and say that this has demonstrable objective significant improvements in reducing cholesterol and it's estimated that an ldl drop of one percent uh drops risk of cardiovascular disease by about two percent so a 20 percent reduction drops cardiovascular risk by over 40 percent so those are pretty amazing numbers hmm. uh, so are you looking to to get like control groups and and make this into something that could, you know, that could get published? Because like, we, when, you know, when we were doing like trying to put trials together to prove that WellStart works, we're driving ourselves crazy trying to figure like, what's it, what are we doing with a control group? Like, are you going to show them, you know, Abbott and Costello instead of forks over knives? Yeah, I haven't thought about that, actually. But of course, getting the control group, like you say, is the challenge. It's just how do you how do you get aged match controls with the similar rates of, of chronic disease so that you can look at the before and after? It's, it's tough. So, so these uh, less uh, statistically solid studies whereby people act as their own controls is sort of the best we have to this point. But uh, they're imperfect, and it's, it's an evolving target for us to try and uh, clarify to people. Mm-hmm. And- but we say to people, you know, with all of these strange diets on the go, and with all of these diets that people are willing to try. So we just do the, the simple pitch to say, look, why don't you just give me uh, why don't you just give me 30 days, right? Like a, maybe something similar to what you'd say. Just give me 30 days and, and try to eat as best you can for 30 days. And then come back to me and we'll do blood work and see how you're feeling. And I've never had anybody come back and say, this is foolish, it's not worth it, and I don't feel so much better. And we find that that's a, an important sales angle too, just like the immersion programs whereby yes we know at day eight people are going to be left to their own to their own devices to try and navigate this food issue but but feeling so good for seven days it itself i think is a tremendous motivator yeah it's like in in uh in sales we learned how to do the puppy dog clothes right like take the puppy (laughs) dog home for the weekend you can bring him back on monday that's right and very few brought the puppy back so Right. I was ta- I was talking. Uh, I did. I interviewed uh, Dr. Greger yesterday and uh, I was talking like his my I don't know if you've seen his latest book, How Not to Diet. I have um, great book. So he like my favorite study in that book was the the ABA study where they were going to do a crossover where their group was going to start out eating poorly, then switch in the middle to plant based and then go back to their old ways. And they had to cancel the study because so few people re- agreed to, to go poorly. back. So that's proof itself that, you know, there's something happening, right? Right. Any, anything else you want to share with folks before we uh, sign off? No, other than, uh, again, thanks for giving me a platform to talk about my practice and, uh, and for me to uh, be excited about our upcoming e-learning program that we're going to launch in March. And we yeah. hope to, uh, yeah, so we can, people can find out about that at williamscardiology.com. Okay. And, um, and, and thank you for letting me uh, be let people become aware of what we're doing here. And hopefully it's going to be accessible to anybody who has an Internet connection. So great. So I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. It's WilliamsCardiology.com. Um, and because I have a backlog, we may not get this out till end of February, beginning of March. So if people are listening and they go, well, I can do you can, presumably I can't, you know, we crystal ball, but it might be ready for you right now to go and, uh, and 
and take the course and learn about it and uh, and share it with 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 other people. And thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Howard. Yeah. So um, I, I wish I hope I also hope in March that your, your weather warms up a little bit. Yes, I hope so. And I want one more question for you. Um, I've been asking for the last like three weeks. I've, I've just started asking my podcast guests this at the end because it's a really fun question for me to ask. What music do you listen to? Do you like has been very meaningful for you that you think other people don't know about? Well, I guess a lot of people do know about Yo-Yo Ma and his cello, uh, uh, his cello work. But I really love that music and find I think I'm more productive when I have that playing in the background. Uh huh. Okay. Anything? Any any piece in particular or album? Uh, I I can't remember his latest album now. Um, a single cello uh, on some of the classics of Bach, I think. But uh, but he is uh, he's a pretty talented man. He'd almost make you want to pick up the cello, although I don't think I'd sound that good. <laughs> well, I remember I saw a video of him at like eight years old, his first concert. It's amazing. It, it made me not want to pick up the cello. No. <laughs> so no, let him, me. you know what? Shane can be my cardiologist. Yo-Yo can be my cellist. I'm just going <laughs> to stick with your, your knitting. Yes. Yes. All right. Yes. Well, you know, I think a lot of people have heard of him, but I'm not sure that many people have listened. So we'll check. I'll, I'll find that album. I'll check out that with you that it's the, the one you're thinking of and I'll post it uh, a link in the show notes as well. So people can, uh, can get their Bach on. And, uh, and I, I imagine, I don't, I don't know the, the, the data, but I imagine there's some data out there on the health effects of, of classical music. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. So. Well, it was nice chatting with you, Howard, and you have a good day. And again, thanks for, uh, giving us a, a platform to talk about our program here in Canada. A pleasure. Thanks for thanks for doing it. Thanks for spreading the word. And I uh, hope to see you before another six years passes. Yes, indeed. All right. All the best. You too. Take care. Shane. All right. Hope you found that useful and inspiring. And you can check out the show notes. There's a lot of links. There's that Ishimia trial website, the Courage trial, a whole bunch of TEDx talks, the Four Leaf survey, and uh, Yo-Yo Ma's Six Evolutions Bach Cello Suites, which uh, I put a link to uh, on Spotify. Again, still running around crazy traveling, so we're going to truncate the outro once again, except to mention that Will Ridenauer wrote the theme music for this show. Hear it now. It's uh, called Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful Korah music. Friday, got another fertilizer for you. And next week, of course, another interview. And stay in touch. Let me know what you think. I will be, uh, as I'm traveling, I will be reading the blog, looking at comments, reading emails uh, sporadically. So if you got thoughts about this or any episode or anything you'd like to hear, let me know. I love to uh, stay in touch. All right, that's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kanowski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl, Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. 
Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Izatuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lenny Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trish Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, and Michael Lushton for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>